This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Hello and welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media podcast about everything in print. Stuart in LA here to talk about World War Z. Not the Brad Pitt action movie that just opened in movie theaters. I will be discussing that with my co-host Arnie and Jacob over at Sister Podcast, nowplayingpodcast.com. Donors of $10 or more can hear my thoughts on that, but I haven't seen that movie as of this recording. What I'm here to talk to you about today is the original source material, World War Z, an oral history of the zombie war, written in 2006 by Max Brooks. It's a follow-up to his 2003 novel, well, more like a how-to guide, The Zombie Survival Guide, Complete Protection from the Living Dead. If you've read that work or you're familiar with Max Brooks's father's films, the comedian Mel Brooks, you might think you're in for a funny tale about world overrun by zombies. Isn't that hilarious? You'd be very mistaken. This is an incredibly surprisingly sophisticated take on zombies. It's not without humor, but it doesn't thrive on slapstick and comedy and joking about where you should hide or how you kill them. It's neither farce nor parody. If it's anything, it's a bitterly ironic humor looking at how humans can oftentimes let each other down through selfishness, through the divisions of our globe, because we divide ourselves between countries and religions and money and class, we can oftentimes ignore a problem until it has become a global pandemic. That it is zombies plaguing people in our future war is almost incidental. This is not a monster story. Fans of horror or action may be the least impressed with it. I think that it is a work of history. That it has drawn on incredible resources and research on what has already happened, namely World War II, to inform what World War III, or in this case World War Z, might look like. It's set in an uncertain future with an anonymous narrator collecting stories throughout the seven continents. Over 50 people in 50 cities throughout the world are telling their tales to a UN representative who's actually being hired to find a much more dry statistical information. That what we learn is that we're 10 years beyond the removal of zombies from the United States, 12 years beyond removing them from China, but it is an ongoing problem. I think the U.S. has been a little bit premature in declaring that war is over. The United Nations is trying to find the information that will allow them to pool their resources and best tackle how to help the rest of the world. And so they've asked this anonymous person to go around, find that information. He was so moved by the stories that he heard, he tried to put it in the report. They wanted something much more dry and statistical, so he has created another work. What we're reading here is the leftovers, all the things that didn't fit into his report, but that he did not want to see 
forgotten. And even though the word war is used a lot here, I don't think of this as a compendium of battlefields and the voices that we hear from. Yes, there is the Vice President of the United States and world leaders. Yes, there are secret agents and heroes on the battlefield. They are represented as part of the voices, but just as World War II is just not the collection of Hitler and Patton and Churchill, I don't think Max Brooks forgets about the Anne Franks. He doesn't forget about the Japanese that were bombed at Nagasaki and Hiroshima. It's a much more widely encompassing global perspective from all walks of life. I dare say, no matter who you are or where you come from, you're going to be represented here on the page somewhere. You're going to see how you would deal with the problem that's being speculated here. And in that respect, I feel like everyone can get something out of World War Z. Although, again, I would caution, it isn't a zombie story for genre gorehounds. We hear some really unique voices. We hear tales from doctors. We hear tales from children. A mentally disabled woman describes the first time she sees a zombie. That's a perspective I wasn't prepared for, and it's powerfully told. A blind man that learns to survive on his other senses out in the wilderness. Astronauts. They were stranded. When this outbreak happened, they had no way to get back to Earth. They watched it unfold from the sky. They used spy satellites to actually read newspaper headlines, to read the lips of people as they screamed their last words. They had to confront it from whether they even had a home to return to. Some truly unique voices here that aren't oftentimes represented when we see zombie stories told in movies or fiction. One of the things I really love about the work is that it doesn't feel like a uniform history. Because there are so many voices from all different cultures, they don't all agree with one another. They're not all reliable narrators. Some of these people are old. They've gotten senile. Some of these people are repressing the truth. It's too painful to go back. And so they tell a different story than the one that the narrator knows to have happened. Some of these people are mentally ill. Some of them are lying. Some of them are opportunists, and many of them just don't have all the facts. This UN person has the gift of being able to travel around the world. That's not so easy to do anymore. Our society is broken down. People aren't hopping on planes, seeing what's going on. The internet is a source of a lot of misinformation and conspiracy. And so people don't know why some of the things they live through happen. We find out why they happen from other stories coming from other parts of the globe. And I love the way that different stories reflect and refract on one another. How one person can say, hey, we really were a turning point in the war. We developed this weapon. And then later you hear from a military honcho that says, yeah, that weapon was no good at all. It didn't do a thing. And so reading World War Z is a really active participatory adventure. I think that it is a mental workout. It requires you to do a lot more work than to just follow a chronological timeline and understand a history from a very clear-cut, cut-and-dry fashion. Might sound daunting, and it is work to do this, but I think Max Brooks has organized these stories in a way that's very helpful. He does start the novel with the first recountings of zombie sightings. Patient Zero, which probably isn't the first zombie infestation, but it has been accepted as the first one. Twelve-year-old boy in China. 
we hear from the doctor that treated him and how they were dealing with something they had never seen before in remote villages with largely ignorant people. We don't know too much more about the origin than that because, well, China is a sequestered country. They do not allow information to flow easily. They don't have good human rights or human health records. And there's not a lot of people left. The area in which this boy was discovered, there was a population of 35 million people. Now, at the compendium of this oral history, there's only 50,000 people. So there's not a lot of witnesses alive to tell you why and where did it come from an animal bite? Did it jump out of the jungles? We don't know. We know that it started in China under a shroud of mystery. Soon it was everywhere. You might think, well, if we have an identifiable point in the map, we can target that, right? We can cut it out. To cancer, you remove that. You nukes, right? If there's going to be a war, we would figure that the first or at least final engagement would be the use of nuclear weapons. Irradiate the area and you've solved the problem from spreading. But here's the trick. China is also the home to a lot of human and organ smuggling. And that is how it really transcends the borders. Someone in Europe needs a new liver. They go to the black market. That liver is taken from an infected person in China. And before you know it, they're falling over, dying, becoming a zombie, and becoming a risk for a new massive outbreak in a region that didn't have it introduced before. And the world keeps spinning. It's not like everyone drops what's going on and is ready to deal with this problem when it first emerges. I think it is the story of human history is that oftentimes tragedy that could be averted happens because people aren't paying attention. They're thinking about other things. By the time that they're looking at the problem, it's too late. There is an early report, we're told, where good information is compiled and is ministered to world leaders, but it ends up at the bottom of a stack of papers in Texas that it just doesn't get into the hands of people that can do something about it until it is too late. And then there's the blame game. There's a lot of countries that want to say it's the other. Israel and Palestine. Whose fault is it? Lots of finger pointing. Not a healthy perspective if you're trying to contain a contagion. And before you know it, there is mass panic. With large people paying smugglers a lot of money to get past borders or hopping on ships and just going out to sea, trying to find that magical island where they can be protected from an infected world. But here's the really the joke of World War Z. I said it wasn't a comedy, but there is a lot of irony here. And one of them is the fact that there is no desert island that can protect you. Just because you're surrounded by water on all sides doesn't mean that the plague can't get to you because these zombies are very resilient. They don't rot at the rate that a normal human cadaver would so they can actually be underwater for years. There is whole populations under the sea walking the seafloor that can just pop up and emerge on your island and some of the most infected worst areas are these isolated nations and island communities. Everyone in Europe tried to get away and so they wound up in Iceland and well that seemed like a good idea at the time but even as of the writing of this World War Z novel in 2030 or what have you, that's an area where they can't even deal with. It's so overrun. Japan has a similar history. 
highly dense population, not a lot of crime, so there's not a lot of guns, not a lot of things to use to protect yourself. Once the zombies start coming, it becomes a place of mass exodus, and a lot of people die just going out to sea, thinking, oh, I'll get away, and by a couple weeks, I can come back, but this is a 10-year or more battle, and oftentimes, people are just prolonging their own death. I think one of my favorite passages in the novel is from the perspective of a Japanese submarine who is taking in the perspective as they go around different island nations and seeing the false hope that islands and secluded areas bring. I mean, where are people to go? Where is the place that you can put them? And how do you know that they're not infected? It becomes a real big political problem. And there's some really evil, heinous solutions to this problem that we see kind of pop up in all different parts of the world, from South Africa to Ukraine to United States. You see people making choices in which they divert the less desirables, the more expendables, if you will, the poor people. Let's just give them the name. The poor people are moved to settlements that allow them to be used as bait when zombie hordes come. So that rich people have an extra buffer in which they're protected. They don't have to worry about running as far because the government has moved a plate full of refugees in front of the zombies that will keep them busy for a while. And so a lot of the testimonials, you'll see a lot of anger, resentment, apologizing, defending the position, Whole populations in the Ukraine were gassed and killed because there just wasn't a place to move them and it was easier to kill them than to risk have them being turned into zombies. It's an equivalent to the gas chamber, really. I mean, there are a lot of World War II equivalents in this novel. This is one of them. Another moving section is in the upper regions of Canada. You know, that was the thing in the Vietnam War. You didn't want to fight in the U.S.? Well, run to Canada. A lot of people think that Canada, with its underpopulation, can protect them. But they show up when Dora, they explore sleeping bags that aren't rated for the intense cold and winters. They're not prepared. They bring their laptops instead of bringing extra food. They're not prepared for it. And it turns into Donner Party situations. It turns into really tragic mass death and a real flip in caste systems you know some of the rich people they don't have any function as society tries to rebuild and regroup that you know if you spent your life being a agent in hollywood or a broker on wall street you haven't been working with your hands you haven't been growing gardens you don't know how to survive these people some of the stories are about how they're relegated to being chimney sweeps they used to be on top and now they're considered menial labor. Welcome to the New World Order. It's really amazing how the map can flip, how Cuba can, can now become a major world power because it had protected borders. It was more prepared than Iceland or Japan for any kind of invasion. In short, Max Brooks has really thought this thing through. There are so many authentic details that jargon and the way people talk, it's not just the stories that they tell, but the language in which they use, it feels real. I love the fact that there are so many different names for zombies. It's not like everyone agreed to the term. There's slang. Military people tend to call them Zack or Zedheads. Reminds me of how the Vietnamese were called Charlie during the Vietnam War. There's ghouls. There's G or Z. G for ghoul or Z for zombie. Depending on where you go, is depending on how they perceive them and what they call them. And people don't respond to the problem in the same way. It isn't all just about picking up arms and fighting. Some people kind of flip out. There is this condition called Queeslings. I think it's named after the 
president of Norway that was flipped and became a Nazi to protect his people. It's normal people who decide to become zombie-like because they have given up believing in humanity. And so the people that are cleaning up the tragedy, they have extra layers to deal with here. Not only do they have to wipe out the Zed heads, but they have to contain the people that are pretending to be zombies. You have to know the difference. And the trick apparently, there's two ways to know. One, there's sniffer dogs that can tell the difference. And then there are a blinking. Zombies don't blink. Queeslings do. And so if you are holding a gun and a horde is running at you, you do have to see the whites of their eyes. You do have to see whether they're going to blink or not. If they blink, you shoot them with a trank dart. You send them over to a rehabilitation center where they can learn to be human again. And if you don't see that eye movement, then you know that it's time to open fire. Feral people, that's another problem. It's a 10-year war, so people that ran off into the wilderness, children, eight years later, are now a problem. They're apart from society, they don't have language skills, they've probably become very animalistic in order to survive, and so they can cause as much trouble for troops that are clearing out an area as real zombies do. The war is weighted in the zombies' favor, because if you think about it, humans can kill zombies, sure, and that only creates corpses. But if zombies get humans, that creates more of them. That strengthens their number. And humans can go into a wilderness area and be killed by a bear, but zombies' skin is toxic. So if animals bite them, the animal is going to die. And again, whatever makes them zombies, whatever attributes have changed their physiology, they're tougher now. They don't rot at the same rate. They can be underwater and not be broken up by the salt water. They can be in the ice for 10 years and be resuscitated and come at you. They can lose limbs and still come crawling. I think as you grow older, they do talk about the bones and all poking through the flesh a bit more, but they're kind of hard to kill. And naturally, this causes a whole lot of depression. I mean, if you have no one to trust and nowhere to run and an unstoppable enemy, it really starts to create weird conditions, medical conditions, something called ADS, asomatic demise syndrome, also known as apocalyptic despair syndrome. It basically means you can't take it anymore. People would go to sleep and just die, not of a medical condition, but their body just didn't see a point of going on. It just literally gave up. And one of the things that turns the tide on this is filmmaking. I like this as another callback to World War II, but Frank Capra created a series of propaganda films called Why We Fight to help inspire Americans to rally behind the war and realize it was a just cause to fight Nazis. Well, this Malibu filmmaker, and maybe Martin Scorsese, he mentions his friend Marty at some point. I think it's supposed to be Scorsese. They make a lot of propaganda films that are bull crap. I mean, the soldiers that fight later say it was nothing like they were shown in the film but it gives people hope and it does keep the number of ADS victims down. And eventually the tide does turn. There are these pivotal moments. The students take over a campus and are able to pool their resources and keep them at bay in California. There's a big turning point in Denver, in India, in Yonkers, a suburb of New York City. We do see stories from the battlefield in which humans start to turn the tide of the war and the technology gets better. There is some information about what weapons work and developing a suit of armor that protects you from bites but is lightweight enough to have you move. All of this is really fascinating minutia. These are short stories. It is one way to conceive a World War Z as a collection of little tiny moments but it adds up 
to a mosaic. It adds up to a global perspective that is just amazing. The mind that is able to think about whales. I mean, I love the detail that so many people go out to see that it starts whaling again for food and so that whales get extinct. They're the real victims of the zombie war because human beings have to go back on their principles and kill animals into extinction. That's someone that's done a really big out-of-the-box assessment on our society. And I am just so impressed what Max Brooks is able to do here in 342 pages. My only real comparative to his style is David Foster Wallace, uh, an author I really love, We Lost Too Soon to Suicide, who created one of my favorite books, Infinite Jest. Another story that is really small in scope. It's hundreds and hundreds of characters telling a small story that unites into this crazy quilt and uses footnotes and all of this refraction that feels both intimate and global. This is sort of a, if David Foster Wallace decided to do a Romero kind of story, and that shouldn't work. Zombie War should be seen as pulp, but I never see this story as being strict genre nonsense. It's really to Max Brooks's credit that he takes it so seriously and has devoted the time, the research, the energy, the talent to just show that we don't have to think of zombies as being B-movie entertainment. However the film with Brad Pitt turns out, I hope I love it, I suspect it won't capture a fraction of what has been done here. How could it? How could any single work do that? I know that when this was originally optioned, it was talked about being made a, a miniseries. I mean, every story here could be its own movie. This could be 50 movies. This could be a nine-year running television series with each episode being a different survivor tale. One would never think they could get everything to be said about World War II into a single film, two-hour movie. I wouldn't expect and don't have the expectations that Brad Pitt will be able to do it in the movie. But I will say this. If you want to see a movie that is like World War Z, go ahead and find Contagion. It was actually written by Max Brooks. It's a film by Steven Soderbergh based on Max Brooks's script, and it's an ensemble about a global pandemic, a virus that nearly wipes out the entire population. It's everything that's in this book, except it doesn't involve literal zombies. High recommend for that one as well, but definitely check out the book. I think there is something here for everyone because it deals with all walks of life, all areas of the world. There's a story here for you. You'll be able to see yourself in this book at some point, even though I suspect not everyone will like the fragmented oral history approach. They might be right in wanting to limit all the perspective to Brad Pitt and his family in the movie because it's daunting. It's a lot of work, but rewarding work to read World War Z. So with that in mind, I'm going to bid you adieu for now. We will be returning in the fall, as Now Playing Podcast does turn its attention to the adapted works of Stephen King. We'll be covering those works in tandem here at Books and Nachos. Arnie will be reading Carrie in time for the new Carrie movie coming out in October. So, Books and Nachos is taking a summer break, but we will be back soon enough to talk about Stephen King and other surprises. Thank you for joining me. Keep reading, and I'll talk with you soon. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. 
Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production. Copyright 2013. All rights reserved.